Welcome to The Ziegler Show, episode 446. Today, we bring you psychologist and recent TEDx presenter, Owen Fitzpatrick, to talk about rewriting your story from victim to overcomer. You can't change reality, but what you can do is change how you perceive reality by seeing yourself and recognizing yourself as someone who can be a hero. So let's say, for example, you're struggling or suffering with depression, or let's say you're you know, 30 pounds overweight, or let's say you're broke. By you seeing I'm broke, poor me, it means that life isn't fair. It's the government. It's this. It's that. You're telling yourself a story of why you're broke. You're not telling a story of how you can overcome it. Tom Ziegler and I talk with Owen and cover some deep ground on, as Owen puts it, the war inside your head. Stay tuned and we'll dig in deep to truly inspire all of our true performance. what you are and where you are because of what's gone into your mind. You can change what you are. You can change where you are by changing what goes into your mind. You cannot become what you need to be by remaining what you are. If you can't take a huge step to begin with, take as big a step as you can, but take it now. That's the key. Take it now. You can have everything in life you want if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. Today's a brand new day, and it's yours. Hi, everyone. This is Kevin Miller, your host of The Ziegler Show. Here is yet another interview where Ziegler CEO Tom Ziegler said, Kevin, I love this guy. We've got to have him on the show. And as usual, wow. I mean, this is what inspiring true performance is all about. A quick bio for you on Owen Fitzpatrick. He's a globetrotting psychologist from Dublin, Ireland, as if his accent doesn't give that away. Uh, but he's the author of six books that have been translated in more than a dozen languages. He's delivered talks and courses in more than 27 countries, helping people to understand more about how their brain works. Owen has a master's in applied psychology, had his own television show, and has spoken on stage with the likes of Sir Richard Branson, Seth Godin, and Dr. Richard Bandler. He's presented lectures and talks in University College Cork, Trinity College Dublin, and Michael Smurfett Business School. Having traveled as far as countries such as North Korea, Rwanda, Afghanistan for his own research, Owen has been fascinated with how propaganda, storytelling, and influence works, which you're going to hear as we get into this interview. He's co-founder of the Irish Institute of NLP. Owen has spent years working as a therapist and corporate trainer. A trained actor and screenwriter, he has specialized in the power of stories as a tool to influence. His recent TEDx talk was an innovative and authentic combination of poetry, rap, storytelling, and science on how to win the war inside your head. So you can find that talk in its entirety if you just type in a search engine anywhere. Owen Fitzpatrick, F-I-T-Z-P-A-T-R-I-C-K. Owen Fitzpatrick, TED, T-E-D, as in TED Talks, and it'll just show up. And you can connect with Owen at blog.owenfitzpatrick.com. So let's get to it. Here is our interview with Owen Fitzpatrick and the war inside your head. Well, hey, Owen, welcome, and thank you immensely for traveling all the way from Ireland just to be on The Ziggler Show. 
Thank you very much, Kevin. Delighted to be here with you and Tom. Well, and uh, obviously you didn't uh, travel here to the studio, but you are in uh, are are in New York, so it's it's relative neighbors as opposed to Ireland. Um, well, Owen, oh, Tom sent your recent TEDx talk to me: "Mind Control: How to Win the War in Your Head." And I saw, I see it was posted November 15, 2016, not that long ago. When I first viewed it, I think literally there was just a couple hundred views. And as of yesterday, when I checked it out, I saw well over 45,000 already. And obviously you've hit a nerve and just wondering, do you feel, you know, and seeing those numbers rising so fast, do you feel surprised, grateful, confirmed? Um, I, I think what I feel is, uh, is, is I'm, I'm really glad that more and more people are seeing it because that was the purpose of the way in which I did it. So the actual talk itself, I decided to use a very, very different approach than I'd ever done for anything I'd done before. So um, the, the entire talk from start to finish is rhymed, and it's about the, the inner war that we fight in our head, so the way in which we talk to ourselves. Um, and I knew that um, you know when I was I first talked about doing a TEDx talk, I I knew I could have done a, a typical traditional TEDx talk or t- told my story or whatever the case may be. And I figured that that would, you know, reach a lot of people. But I didn't feel that it would um, make as much of an impact as I wanted to make with the talk. The, the, the TEDx format or the TED format gives you an opportunity to reach a lot of people because a lot of people are interested in the TEDx or TED type of um, style. So I wanted to reach as many people as possible. And I figured in order to do that, the smart approach would be to to take a big risk and a gamble and do something people listening and once they're listening then put across to me one of the most important messages that i want people to hear which is that you can overcome the challenges that exist inside your head and that you can overcome the negative voice that tries to undermine you sometimes so for me i'm i'm honored i'm humbled i'm delighted um and uh, and i hope that it continues to reach more and more people um because that was the aim of the like I said, alternative style that I decided to use for it. Okay. Okay. Well, Owen, so yeah, not only an alternative style there, but a pretty in-depth and and vulnerable message as well. Was there a, I mean, I know that the topic uh, is, is part of your overall platform, but was there a catalyst for this specific message? And, And somewhat in regards to the fact that, yeah, you get pretty vulnerable with your Self, anything that happened with you or with clients or with the culture that you said, I want to deliver this message right now. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the message is so important to me because, you know, when I was a teenager, I was suicidal. I was extremely depressed. And um, it's a struggle that I think there's so many people out there that face all the time. And so for me, from my point of view, what I wanted to do was to, you know, be as open as possible about my own struggle. And now you know, did, did I have reservations about going as, as real and as authentic as I did it? Um, of course. But at the end of the day, I think that, you know, if, if you truly want to reach people, you have to be as fully real as possible. You have to be yourself 100%. And if you do that, I think you'll reach so many more people and people will listen to you more. I think there's so many people that, you know, that can be in our industry and, and could sort of, you know, smile, put plaster a smile on their face and walk up and tell people how great everything is and how great they are and how they've done this and done that. And there's, you know, there's a bit of fakery there, you know, I feel. And I think that the, the most important thing that I look for when I'm being inspired by someone or by being impacted by someone is authenticity. You know, if, you know, taking, for example, Zig Ziglar and, and Tom as well, if you see either of them speak, you know, be it in two different styles, 
the one thing that comes across from both of them is a realness. You know, who they are on stage is the same as who they are off stage. They're being very straightforward, being very real, and you can feel the kind of person that they are, and that, that makes them much easier to listen to than, for example, uh, a lot of other people there who know how to, you know, act on stage, but don't really, you know, give people the opportunity to see the real them. And so um, I just wanted to be as authentic and real as possible and explore, you know, my, my, my deepest insecurities and let people know, you know what, if you do have these insecurities or insecurities like them, it's okay. You know, it, it's just... You know, it's just a negative voice. It doesn't mean that you're messed up or there's anything wrong with you. You can't beat this. You can get through it. Um, and I felt that's one of the things that I thought was, uh, you know, was was extremely important about the way in which I did it. So it's not just a some fancy rhyme that I, I spent time on. It's me opening up my mind to the world and showing, look, you know, it happens to me. Um, it happens to so many people. And, and it's OK that it does. And you just got to battle and, and do your best to win. Oh, and you know, one of the things that just struck me about uh, your your rhyme, uh, when you talk about transparency, Dad and his delivery and his speeches and what he did is whenever he had more than an hour, he always told his story, uh, his story of, of struggle, of, you know, having his car repossessed, of having the lights turned off and, and starting over and over and over again. And I think what happens is that when people see that, they identify with it. In other words, you're not the expert on stage looking down the nose. Yeah. You're that good friend who's been there sitting next to them. And uh, so that really, uh, that part of that message inspired me when you are on the road and i've had the opportunity to, to go and uh take a course from you which i enjoyed immensely uh but and i know you travel all over the world and you're doing so many different things when people come to you privately what is the and they know your story or backstory a little bit what's the most common thing that they're asking you about well a lot of them want to know how i um was able to become good enough to do what I do. So, for example, if I'm working with someone privately, they know my story. They know that I do get the lucky opportunity to travel around the world and to teach courses in lots of different places and to write books, etc. So their questions are usually, well, how did you do that? So it's not just how did you get over being depressed or how did you get over struggling? It's actually how did you then turn your life around? How did you start to build this life for yourself? And what I try to you know, emphasize to people is that oftentimes – we, we see the results of things. So, for example, you watch a TV show and, you know, you rarely, if ever, see on the TV show people going to the toilet or people getting out of bed. We only see the results of their decision. So you see them make a decision and then you see them, you know, the results of that decision. And so there's an awful lot of work that goes on behind the scenes. And I think one of the things, you know, you you reminded me of something that your dad used to say that, that you know, Zig used to say about you know, um, motivation is like a bath. You should do it every day. And I thought that's one of the cleverest and best ways of thinking about motivation I'd ever heard. Because oftentimes we think we'll inspire people and motivate people and then they'll be grand. You know, they'll come do a course for, for three, four days. They'll be inspired and then they'll leave and then they'll live happily ever after. And that's not the way life is. Life is a continuous, um, you know, set of challenges that you have to overcome. And it requires that you need discipline. You need to work really hard. And you need to motivate and keep yourself motivated every day. And even when you're not motivated, you still have to act in, you know, what I call discipline in a disciplined way. 
So to me, the, the message I try to get through to people when they ask me about how do you, you know, build a, a successful life or a happy life is that it's about be motivating yourself whenever you can, but also discipline yourself so that when you don't feel like exercising, you still exercise. When you don't feel like, you know, sitting down, doing the work that you need to do, you still do it anyway. And I think once you begin to start to realize that a lot of it's in, under your control, then you can start to make better decisions. You can start to take better actions and you can start to create exactly what you deserve because, you know, God knows there's enough challenges in life without the challenges of our own inner mind. And, you know, to appreciate all the amazing parts of life is critical. And that's not always necessarily easy. So that's why you've got to really work on yourself. And, and you know, those people, which includes me, who used to listen to, you know, cassette tapes of, of Zig in the car. You know, it wasn't that I was learning massively new information every time I, I heard them. It was that Zig was able to, through his story and through his message and through his incredible ability with words, to be able to get through to me in a way that made me feel for that day that I could take over the world. And uh, I, I think that's one of the things that people a lot of times forget is that motivation is a continuous, consistent thing. Discipline is a continuous, consistent thing. And that's what I try to get through to people, not just personally that I work with, but also the people in the trainings as well. Well, so in this message, I want to dig in a little bit, Owen, and that, that statement, how to win the war inside your head. So one of the most popular things we've ever done here on this show, the, Zig, the Ziggler Show, is promote the self-talk cards that I know you're well aware of, which, folks, as always, you can get them at Ziggler.com slash self-talk. But the testimonials from those are profound, uh, you know, at least from, from those who actually go forth and do them. But it's one thing, I think, to comprehend the benefit of speaking positive things to ourselves. That's not a big leap. I mean, it is for somebody to actually do it. But for them to comprehend that, okay, that makes sense. But it seems like quite another to understand and acknowledge that there's a war going on in my head. I mean, if I had to guess, I'd say most people think of their minds. I, mean, I was just trying to think internally myself that I tend to inherently think of my mind as, you know, it's just they're neutral, right? Uh, there to engage in whatever I might need at the moment, but otherwise it's somewhat static and set. And yet it sounds like you found this to be untrue. Uh, tell us more about that statement. There's a war going on inside your head. Well, from my point of view, if you look at the history or you look at the biology of you know, how, we, you know, how we came to be here, our, our, our brains naturally evolved certain mechanisms. And one of those mechanisms was protecting us. So the whole flight, fight, or fright response where we know how to get away from danger. So our brains give us um, and an, an aim to help us in some way to be able to survive. In order to do that, they get us to pay attention to the negative more easily. And worrying, uh, fearing, being anxious, being depressed, all of those are different strategies used by your brain to be able to protect you in some way. Now, the problem is, is that oftentimes after a certain period, they don't work so well anymore. So the problem is, is that it's almost like a computer that's broken. They keep playing the same patterns over and over again. So if you worry about something once, that's actually good because it reminds you of something important in your future that you need to do something about. Unfortunately, we don't just worry about it once. Our brains continuously worry about it over and over again, even if we can't do anything about it. So to me, that side of our head in terms of that, you know, we can call and I, we use the metaphor of the inner voice. Well, there's not just one inner voice. We have in, internal dialogues where we talk to ourselves and rationalize ourselves and we ask ourselves questions and we answer them. And so a lot of that internal dialogue comes from a negative place, comes from a, a place that's trying, that's afraid, that's trying to protect us. 
But in doing so, like I said, it's repetitious and it keeps continuously saying negative things. And after a while, it becomes almost like propaganda from the outside world, what I call inner propaganda. We get convinced of it. So I always say the problem with people when they're struggling with depression, it's not that you think negatively, it's that you believe negatively. So these ideas mix with your feelings, which are quite intense, and they convince you that the world is in a bad place. They convince you that everything's there to be scared of. They convince you that you're not going to be able to succeed. They convince you that you'll be, you know, that you'll do a terrible job in terms of speaking on stage. So your brain is actively working, building these negative beliefs. But at the same time, there's also the positive side of your brain and there's the, 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 the voice inside your head that you need to make louder. It's the voice that when you hear these motivational cassettes and when you're inspired by a great speaker, you know, it, it, it allows you to feel stronger. You're able to repeat those, you know, when you read those, you know, um, inner voice cards and stuff that you repeat those kind of suggestions to yourself and you start to make them stronger, believe them more and you start to convince yourself of them more. And I think that struggle that like I call it a war is from the inner negative propaganda that we hear and that we convince ourselves again from our brains, stupid, but, you know, at one point necessary attempt to protect us. And by us struggling with that, especially when our brains are skewed to the news, it's another thing that, you know, myself and Tom, you know, we've talked about before, Thomas, when you've talked about, you know, the news cycle and how everything out in the news is so full of negativity, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes it's a good idea even, you know, to go on a diet from the news outside uh, from the media sometimes because it's just re repeating negative messages because that's what gets our attention. So I think this war is real. It's the war for mental health. It's the war for happiness. It's the war against anxiety, against depression, against suffering and struggling. And I think the key is that we need to recognize our own power, our own control, our ability to question and challenge just like we would do external propaganda, to question and challenge and ask for evidence and say, hang on a second, how do you know that I won't succeed? You know, who says I won't succeed? What stops me from succeeding? And to be able to be stronger and have that and not allow this inner, inner bully to dictate how we feel. And um, I just felt that it's, it's, you know, every time we talk about the mind, we talk about it as a metaphor. And I think that this is, a, for me at least, a useful metaphor. And, and because of it, it means that I've been able to overcome my own struggle. Um, and I've overcome, you know, my own struggle with depression. And even when I'm challenged from time to time, I'm feeling down. It's not happiness that gets me. It's determination. And it's the ability to remind myself to be strong in my head and not to allow myself to buy into the lies that, uh, you know, the negativity tries to teach me. And to me, that's why the whole idea of the inner voice and winning the internal dialogue, winning the war of propaganda, winning the war of your mind is so important. Well, it's interesting to me. I haven't heard it put in that way that those some of those aspects of worry or, or anxiety or you know negative things and somewhat it sounds like you're saying those aren't bad and wrong. Those are natural. Those are inherent. And it made me go back to discussions that my wife and I have had with our kids that you know it's not a sin to get angry. That's natural. Uh, it would yeah. be weird if you never did. Now to walk forward and act out within that anger, that's where we get into trouble. And so it feels like you're saying, okay, those, those worries, I mean, it has a purpose. It's to remind you of something that you need to do, but then to live within that is where we go wrong. I, that, that's a helpful perspective to put it in. And then, but also when you talk about this narrative that goes on talking to ourselves, um, give me a little bit, because I, I'm one of those people who would say, I don't, I don't talk to myself. I don't, I don't have narratives with myself. 
in a conscious state. I'm not one of those people that does talk. My wife literally talks to herself and she'll talk out loud. I say, what are you talking about? What? I'm just, I'm just talking to myself. Like, I don't do that. So I would say, well, I don't talk to myself, but I assume that you're saying it's, it's the thoughts there. When, is there ever not a thought going on in my head about something about myself in relation to what's happening? I mean, that is constant and nonstop. And to me, that sounds like that's what you're saying. I've got to take those things. Those natural thoughts that are on, on, just running on adrenaline, I've got to take those captive or I'm, I'm, I'm dead in the water. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think, I think you've got to be aware of them and you've got to make sure that you stand up to them. So, for example, I think, like you said, a lot of people aren't aware that they're talking to themselves, but we all do. I mean, it's just a way of thinking about it. But, you know, even people who are meditating who are saying, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be thinking anything. And, you know, when they close their eyes, they're thinking to themselves, okay, don't think of anything. All right, <laughs> right. complete silence. Right. Okay. Yeah. Am I silent yet? Am I silent? Because the only way you know you're silent is if you ask the question, am I silent? So, yeah. it's, and, and it's not that people aren't, that isn't a great practice. Of course it is. But my point is, is that, you know, when we talk to ourselves negatively, it's not that you have to capture or you have to fight from the point of view of fearing these thoughts it's that you let these thoughts in there but at the same time you challenge them so you know sometimes i'll use satire in in the therapy that you know that i've I've been a therapist for many years and a lot of times satire is one of the greatest skills it's getting people to ridicule their own limiting negative beliefs so that they recognize that they're silly because the problem like i said isn't the negative thought it's the negative belief and it's the fact that we believe it. And when you ridicule or when you challenge and when you get the person to literally start to think about these ideas or thoughts and recognize that they're a lie or recognize that they're silly or recognize that they're stupid, that's one of the things that can help them to change. Because, again, there's sometimes people go over the top and they've what, you know, a great screenwriting um, lecture that, I, that I've seen in action called Robert McKee. He calls negophobia is that we're almost afraid to be negative. And it's like, don't say anything negative ever, because that's, you know, that's a bad thing. And I think that's when we get ridiculous as well, because there is bad things that happen. And there is, you know, things that we can have a problem with. But the key is to immediately focus on what we can do about it, to ask ourselves the question, what can we do about it? And worrying about something once, like we said, allows us to be able to give us um, something that we pay attention to. But then we need to figure out what are we going to do about it? And if we can't do anything about it, we need to, you know, accept it. Um, but we need to be focusing always on what we can do and where we can go and what we can achieve. And that means making our, you know, positive voices, for want of a better expression, stronger, more certain. You know, a lot of times people, when they talk about themselves as a, you know, when they, when you ask them to describe themselves, pessimists never say, I'm a pessimist. They always say, I'm a realist. Mm-hmm. And if you think about how, you know, negative that perspective is, is that, well, life is really, really bad because I'm not a real, I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist. Whereas they'll call optimists idealists, like that's a bad thing. And to me, I think that you know, optimists and pessimists both distort reality, but one is more useful than the other. And so the key is to make sure that that voice, the positive voice, the optimistic voice, the useful voice, the solution-focused voice, is stronger, better, more able, um, and and is thinking smarter um, than the other voice. And by doing that, then we can win. You know, I, oh, and I I remember. We were talking about it this morning in our in our company uh, about 16 years ago. We launched a business that didn't go, uh, and it was with the great financial and emotional cost that we had to close it. And as we're picking up the pieces, I'm talking with Dad, and I'm like, Dad, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And he looked at me, almost not even comprehending how distressed I was, and I knew that he knew the same numbers that I knew. 
And I, and I said, Dad, how do you handle this so well? And Because he literally didn't worry. And he said, well, son, I just focus on what I can do. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's too simple. You know, <laughs> make, it, <laughs> make it harder. And, and this is literally now that I've studied this and, I, and I've, I've, you know, just kind of gotten to the, to the deep side of it, is he literally in his walk and, and what he spoke and what he researched is he said, you know, we've got an emotional side and we've got a logical side. Emotionally, I know that if my attitude is positive and I, I keep this uh, way about me, it's like, a, it's, it's like a coach at halftime. The best chance of winning the game is to get the team to believe in themselves and point out the good that they've done in the past. And so he knew emotionally that he was on the right track, but he also knew that logically he was on the right track because thinking about what went wrong does nothing to solve what we can do next to focus on a solution. So I'm just kind of echoing what you said, but let's say somebody's in a trap, you know, they're doing that cycle where they're just beating themselves up, beating themselves up. They're listening to that negative inner voice. What's the, what's the first thing they can do to kind of break that cycle? Well, the first thing they can do is to start to recognize that the inner voice is coming from the, their, their need to protect themselves or their need to hide away or their need to be able to, you know, um, feel sorry for themselves, which is sometimes a, a feeling of love that we give ourselves. Whenever we feel self-pity, sometimes it makes us feel better because we're feeling sorry for ourselves. But first recognize that it's coming from somewhere and it's our brain's attempt to try to help us. But the words that we're hearing, the words that we're speaking to ourselves aren't the truth. They're just what we're saying at that moment in time. So the first step, I think, is to recognize it's a lie. Whenever I talk to people who are suffering or struggling with depression, I always get them to be aware of it's a lie. Whatever negative thoughts they're thinking, it's a lie. Now, what is the truth? Well, that's something that we have to, you know, have to ask questions about and start to explore more. But it's important to recognize that you are not your thoughts and your thoughts are not going to dictate your reality. The second thing is to be able to get them to be able to ask different questions. So getting them to be able to ask questions like, what can I do about this? Like, you know, what, what, what your dad or what Zig did so brilliantly was no matter what was going on around him, he would always be able to, you know, ask, well, what can I control? What am I in control of? And he would be able to understand what he isn't and isn't in what he is and isn't in control over. And so asking better questions like, what can I control? What can I do? What is the solution here? What do we need to do uh, to move forward here? What's the most useful way of thinking about it? Those kind of questions empower us. You know, I remember, you know, um, a few years ago, I was, you know, I arrived in Lithuania uh, to do this big conference in front of about 5,000 people. And I was the first speaker the following morning. And I arrived at about one o'clock on a, one of the budget airlines from Ireland. And I had my, I was wearing a tracksuit or whatever, and my um, suitcase had a, you know, my suit in it, and it had my shoes and stuff like that. Now it was about one o'clock in the morning. We're all waiting for the, um, the the luggage to come down the belt, and everyone's luggage came except for mine. And I realized that, and this was about three years ago. I realized that as soon as the, I realized my luggage wasn't there, my first thought was, okay, so what am I going to do? All right. First, I'm going to go back to the hotel. I'm going to go on the internet. I'm going to find out where's the nearest suit shop. Then I'm going to figure out if any of the other people. So I started actively planning and preparing for the next 10 minutes or so exactly what I needed to do in order to solve the problem because I was speaking at 10 the next morning. Now, as it happened, just as soon as after about 10 minutes or so, I was leaving. 
and the next thing I heard the beep of the the um, the belt, and it started again, and I had one solitary suitcase left on it, which happened to be mine. So I don't know if it was a practical joke or you know what, what was going on, but I saw the suitcase, and then everything was was okay. But what I was most proud of is, you know, ten well maybe fifteen years ago, ten years ago, I would have asked myself the question, what am I going to do? But instead, this time I asked myself the question, okay, so what am I going to do? And even though they're the exact same question, the tones that I use in the way in which I ask them focus attention on two radically different things. So when you ask better questions and you ask them in better ways and you're focusing on what you can do, you're much more likely to be able to deal with it. And the last thing I'll say in terms of, and these are just some, some ideas, is using the word but. So whenever you're thinking to yourself negatively about anything and you're saying, oh, this and that and the other, it's okay to think negatively as long as you put but at the end of it and then finish with a positive idea. So if you're going to think, because your brain thinks positive and negative, so it might go, you know, when you're not thinking well, you normally go, I want to do a good job at this presentation, but what if I make a mistake? I hope I can sell enough, but what if I don't? But instead, if you flip the sequence and you go, um, what if I don't make enough, but I think I'll be able to sell, or I want to be able to sell, or I'm going to be able to sell, or... Um, these people not, might not like my presentation, but what if I do a great presentation? So you're flipping around the sequence so that you're always making the positive one comes after it. What happens is the word but tends to dismiss what comes before it and tends to tune your attention to what comes after it. So but is useful in lots of contexts. The key is when you're thinking to yourself to always be able to be aware of the use that you have of it in your inner mind and to flip the sequence. Um, but again, those three simple ideas recognizing that whatever you're thinking to yourself is not the truth it's in you know it's a lie and it's trying to convince you of something that is not true second of all beginning to focus on asking better questions and what's the most useful thing to do and then reversing the secrets around but and making sure that the positive comes after the but those three i think are three extremely useful strategies that i've used and taught to thousands of people um, that that they found useful all right. Oh, and I, I love that. And and uh, one of the words that I teach, actually, it's two words, is the, the two words until now. You know, I've, I've never been able to sell that until now, or I'm, nobody in our family's ever gone to college until now. Love so it. I love that. And I'll just give you a speaker tip in the United States. This, this works. If your suitcase gets lost and you've got to go on stage and you don't have your clothes, the secret tip is this. Go down to the local athletic store, Walmart, whatever, and whatever the college, university, or pro team is, just buy their jersey and wear that on stage. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I will remember that one. That is good. I like it. Hey, I, I don't want I don't want anybody to miss something that you said. You said positive and negative perspectives, both, uh, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, I think. I was trying to type fast, but, but they both distort reality, but one is more Useful. I love that, uh, folks. You who are Ziegler fans will probably remember his statement of, uh, we've done a show about it. Positive thinking won't let you do anything, everything, but it'll let you do everything better than uh, negative thinking will. Um, man, it, it's just that we've got to take, yeah, talk about taking a truth captive and steering ourselves with it. Well, something else in this vein here, I asked you prior to the interview about the main message that you wanted to give to the Ziegler audience. And part of what you shared uh, was influence. You said influencing others, but first and foremost, helping people influence ourselves. 
And again, this just does not feel like a normal perspective. I think that as, as humans, we generally view ourselves as, you know, we're going along, we exist, and we're influenced by whatever we are exposed to, good or bad. And we have control over what we allow ourselves to be exposed to. But when you say we influence ourselves, are you literally saying that we choose what influences us? Or no, we literally influence ourselves as a being unto our own being. I think I'm saying both, actually. Um, one, of the, one of the things that we've been learning quite a lot over the last 20, 30 years or so is an area called behavioral economics. And basically, it's to do with the psychology of decision-making and why we decide what we decide. And it's a, it's, it's a field that began to look at the fact that we make a lot of mistakes that rational human beings should not make. And why do we make those mistakes? And the answers in that and the research suggests that we make these mistakes because we have a lack of information. We, therefore, we generalize. And in order to think effectively, so, you know, in order for you to know how a door works or how to be able to open a door, your brain has to be able to compute and learn a pattern so that when you see a door, you don't go, how does this work? You pretty much have figured it out because there's only a number of different options. So your brain generalizes, which means that's great, which means that we learn rapidly. The problem is a lot of times we generalize unnecessarily and we make generalizations that then trap us or limit us in some way. So when I say we influence ourselves, what I'm talking about is the fact that we convince ourselves of certain things. So there's a, these, one of the, one of the um, most popular and most famous um, what we call mistakes we make or cognitive biases we have, which is you know, what lead us to make such, such mistakes, is what we know as the confirmation bias. Now, the confirmation bias is what Warren Buffett suggests is the single greatest reason as to why people make mistakes in terms of investments. And basically what the confirmation bias is, is it says that whenever you get an idea that something is true, you'll look for evidence to prove that idea and you'll dismiss evidence that contradicts us. Now, the greatest example on the planet was the U.S. election. If you go on social media, if you're a Trump supporter, what you'll do is any contrary evidence that you know a Clinton supporter will say, you'll dismiss it and excuse it, and you'll just focus on all the Trump propaganda. If you're a Clinton supporter and someone comes with a good article written about Trump, again, you'll dismiss it and convince yourself of the propaganda about Clinton. So we convince ourselves, once we have an idea, we look for evidence that proves that idea, and we dismiss any evidence that contradicts us. So we're literally becoming more sure of whatever our ideas or thoughts are. Now, the problem with that, or the, the, sorry, the reason why we do that is because we have a need for certainty. Back again, when we were trying to survive in the olden days, we had to be right or we died. If we didn't know when to run away from the animals, if we didn't know when to fight, if we didn't know when to hide, we died. So certainty was necessary, and our brains released dopamine whenever we're certain, or, or you know, the, the feel-good um, chemical whenever we're certain about something. So because of that, our brains look to be certain as often as possible, even to the sacrifice of actual truth or reality. And so when we influence ourselves, oftentimes we just convince ourselves more and more of our own point of view. And not only does external information that challenges us, um, you know, make us um, less likely to believe it, it actually makes us more certain of our own positions in the first place. Um, that's what we call the backfire effect. So you try to convince a supporter of the other side, and the more you try to convince them, the more they become even more certain with their point of view. Now, when I talk about winning a war or, or winning this argument or influencing yourself more successfully, the best way to do that is by asking questions. To be able to ask questions, to be able to get the person to realize that what they think is not necessarily true, but asking questions to get them to begin to make the changes themselves. So the best strategies for influence lies in your ability to ask good questions, not in telling the person they're wrong or showing them evidence. 
you know, in terms of what one of the things that Zig did so well was his ability to be able to sell using stories, sell using getting people to see and experience what it would be like to use the product or use the service. And that came about through not just telling stories, but also asking questions, listening to the customer, listening to the person in front of you and be able to ask questions that get them thinking in a certain way. So I think it was Zig or uh, I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure, but it was something along the lines of, you know, um, people don't like to uh, people don't like to be sold to, but they do love to buy. And it's getting people to feel that they can take ownership over their own decisions. And that comes about as a result of asking questions and getting them to see that there's different sides of, uh, you know, there's different points of view, but not assuming that you're right and jumping in and going, this is the right way. When I was a therapist, if I'm working with someone who's severely depressed, the worst thing in the world I could do is to start giving them a rant about how positive everything is, how great everything is, because that doesn't resonate for them. They're inside their head already convinced, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand what it's like to be me. But when I'm asking them questions, and I'm asking questions that get them to challenge their own limiting thoughts, asking them for evidence for their negativity, asking them for evidence for all this, then eventually they begin to realize, well, maybe I'm not as right as I thought I was. Maybe this the, the, the world isn't as messed up as I thought it was. Maybe life isn't as, as torturous as I think it is. Maybe the future isn't as bleak as I thought it was. And by asking questions, you help them to change the way in which they think, um, which in turn you know, enables them to influence themselves and gives them back some control over their own thinking so that they can choose how they feel, they can choose how they think, and they can choose what kind of life they build for themselves. So, Owen, one of the things that I heard Dad say many times, and this is more of a sales strategy, he would say that uh, the prospect would say no, and the worst thing you can do is try to get them to change their mind. So what he would say is, uh, very succinctly, is he would say, hey, I don't want you to change your mind, but I would like to give you some new information so you can make a new decision. Yes. And and so what you're really saying is in our battle, in our in our mind, the war for our mind and what we believe in, that question we can ask ourselves is what's what's new information that I can bring in that will help me make a new decision? I, I love that. I think that's really, really great because, uh, again, the thing is when you say, I want to give you new information to make a new decision. You're avoiding the biggest trap most people fall in, which is making the other person wrong. Because even someone severely depressed, they don't want to be wrong. They still want to be right, even about how messed up everything is. And when you say that with regards to new information, I mean, that's terrific because that gives them the opportunity to then go, well, I can stay right, but now I can be right in a more useful way. So I love that. Yeah, it reminds me of that old sales quote, when you prove the customer wrong, you both lose. Yeah, uh, I want to hit on your statement about certainty, Owen. It's a, it's literally a nerve uh, for me, not a nerve, but just something that we've talked about. Uh, again, with my family has been a big one. I mean, I, in a personal development standpoint and health and wellness, I'm looking for what, what is the healthiest and best thing to do to, to eat? You know, is there ever a, a, uh, can we really debate that a, a carrot is not better than a Pop-Tart, uh, in, in essence? You know, and you want to find those things. That you say, okay, these are the certainties. These are what is best. This is what I'm going to go forward and, and do. And so I, I understand that. But in doing that, I also have witnessed and experienced the negative side of that when it – and I'm going to go right to – this is right out of the text of your talk. You said because we're convicts of our own convictions. 
And that stuck out to me because I have fallen to that. And it seems that you're speaking of our tendency, again, to develop those beliefs that are part of our image, part of our security, part of our, of our certainty. And yet we do that at the risk of not being open to a, would you say a better truth or that sometimes it's, it's just gray that, yeah, maybe a carrot is technically nutritionally always better than a pop tart, but we can come up with some scenario where it's not best or, or, or that's not the point. And it causes us to be strong enough to be open. Is that, is that an essence? Am I getting it right? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think the reality is we're all convicts of our own conviction. So there's not a person on the planet that doesn't, you know, convince themselves of, of certain things or doesn't believe in certain things. I think that, um, you know, there's there's a great, you know, sort of philosopher or science fiction author, Robert Anton Wilson, that had a quote where he said, strong belief is the death of intelligence. And, you know, huh. we don't take that to an extreme, but, it, but to me it was one of the most profound things because from my point of view, the way I try to see it is that, you know, I have my certain convictions and those convictions either help me or harm me. And the way I like to think about it is we're only convicts when they cause our, our, our life, our family, ourselves, um, you know, to, to suffer as a result of them. Um, and when you're thinking in a more useful way, then necessarily, then even if they're your convictions, you're no longer a convict of them because you're no longer trapped by those because they're helping you or serving you. So I think it goes back to that question, what's the most useful way of thinking about it? Now, the problem is a lot of times most of the decisions people make aren't necessarily in the personal life with regard to themselves, their families, but are external to that. So they're, you know, labeling what they believe is best for everybody else. And therefore, they're convinced that this is the right way to be or that this is the right way to live, not recognizing that you have to live your own life. Um, and to impose all of your rules on someone else is a certain recipe for disappointment. And so arguing or debating in a, in a healthy way, in a healthy fashion, what you believe to be important for everybody else, that's one thing. But holding it against other people or, you know, dismissing or not listening to the other side at all, that's the real problem. And so what I always try to encourage people to do is, number one, make sure that any of the thoughts that you think, any of the ideas or beliefs that you hold are useful for you and help you and empower you. If you listen to anything that Zig teaches or anything that Tom teaches, if you listen to them, they're all pretty much, regardless of what you think, regardless of if you share the same religion or same, you know, philosophy about the world as, you know, as, you know, Zig or Tom, the reality is that the, in essence, the ideas are still useful. They're still empowering. They still allow you, allow you to be able to change. So if you're a Muslim, if you're an atheist, if you're a Christian, it still helps you just as much. And that's why people from all over the world are affected or impacted so much by, by, by the work. But the key is that when you're talking about, you know, trying to convince other people, the most important thing is to be able to listen to the other side. And to me, I always, I try to get people to, I, you know, when I used to teach psychology class and stuff, and sometimes in my courses, I get people to tell me what, what their belief is. So on, on some topic, it could be anything. And then I get them to argue the exact opposite to that. And I don't do that to convince them. I do it because I think one of the richest thing we can get is the insight into the other side, how the other person thinks. When Democrats and Republicans or conservative and liberals start talking to each other and really listening to the other side and taking the other side's perspective and point of view, I think it makes us richer because it means that we have more than one way to see a situation. And even if we stick to our guns and stick to our beliefs, 
at least we can understand the other side, which worst case scenario means that we're much more likely to communicate better with them. And I think that's such an important thing that I try to do is I always challenge my own thoughts. Whenever I see that new confirms the opposite to what I believe, I force myself to open up to it. And, and doing that, it means that I feel I understand the other side more and therefore, you know, I get less frustrated uh, with the way people think. You started off your talk right there on stage and you talk about being young, 14 years old and a bully and something that was said to you. And this is an, an issue that comes up in every show, every Q&A we do where somebody has been, in all reality, they've been victimized. And as I was literally reading, listening to your talk, reading the script of it, I thought, is there, it would, is it, is it, is it relevant for us all as a therapist that to some degree we all need to get on the table that there's an aspect of victimization that we are all, uh, we have all fallen to and we need to be aware of, get out on the table and know that either we are going to work to eradicate that or minimize that. But, it, but it, to a degree, it's always there. It's always something there. And, and our, I guess the other question is, are a lot of us suffering for lack of accepting conceptualizing that we have been victimized to negative thoughts that are handicapping us. Yeah. I, I mean, I totally agree with the second thing. I mean, in terms of therapy and I'm, you know, as someone who's done therapy for quite a while, I think sometimes, you know, there can be this over, over reliance on therapy where that, you know, every person thinks, Oh, I should go to a therapist. It'll always be good. And sometimes going to a therapist can actually make you dwell much more on a lot of the negative stuff. And, you know, you could be quite happy, but because you go to a therapist, that could make you actually, you know, um, do too much introspection, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But I think that recognition that we're the own victims of our own bullying, you know, as I put it, and again, these are only metaphors, but I think that's so, so important for people because, you know, there's there's the recent cases in the media where, you know, people kill themselves as a result of, you know, being bullied by other people. But in reality, if you have the right mindset in your head and if you're not bullying yourself, in other words, if you like yourself, if you love yourself, if you believe in yourself, if you think good thoughts about yourself, you know, even as a teenager, if you've got a strong sense of self and you appreciate who you are, then the bullying that you get from other people just doesn't work the same way. It doesn't impact you the same way. You know, we're all sensitive. Like, you know, when I look at the video and, and you know, it's got lots of views, when I see it, there's still the thumbs down that my brain will naturally, you know, I'll see 20 thumbs down and I'll naturally feel, you know, almost punched in the stomach from that. Even though there's hundreds of, you know, thumbs up and, uh, you know, thousands of views, my initial reaction will be, Ugh. but then instantly what kicks in is what I've trained myself to do to recognize that nobody will think that you're amazing. You know, not everyone will think you're amazing. Not everyone will see just the good side of you. And and people don't know you. Most of the people that criticize or think negative thoughts or bully you, they don't understand. They don't know you. It's coming from them. There's a lot of people that troll online and bully online. That's nothing to do with the people they're bullying. It's all to do with what goes on in their head. And when you have a strong sense of self, when you're not bullying yourself, when you're not victimizing yourself, when you're standing up to yourself and being strong and liking and loving yourself, then that means that you become much stronger so that when you do it, you do see this coming at you. You can recognize it for what it is and accept it for what it is. And that's the weaknesses of other people. And you can feel almost love or compassion towards the people that attack you because you know the reason they're doing it is because of themselves. You know, one of the things that um, 
um, Obama said, and whether people like him or not, I'm not talking about him politically, but one of the richest things I thought he said was in an interview with Michael Lewis in about 2012. And he said, there's all these people saying horribly nasty things about you. Um, and, uh, you know, how do you survive? How does your self-esteem stay intact when there's so many people attacking? And he said, well, the way I see it is, is that people aren't attacking me. They're attacking this person that they, they call Obama. And, you know, they have an awful problem with him, but they don't know me. They're just making decisions based upon their political beliefs or based upon what they've been told or based upon their anger or frustration about some policy. But they're not attacking me. They're attacking this idea of a person. And I think that's a really useful way of thinking for a lot of us. And it doesn't mean that we don't take feedback and don't learn from our mistakes. and don't learn from the fact that people are pissed off, uh, sorry, annoyed uh, with, with us. It just means that we can be aware of that and notice that and make better decisions as a result of that. Because oftentimes we're our own worst critic. And because of that, when we do get criticized by others, we've, the, the, the danger is we're lured into believing this is the truth. And that's the worst thing in the world to do. Instead, you recognize it's coming from a place of pain. Other people are in pain. And sometimes when people are in pain, they ask for help. Other times when people are in pain, they attack, they bite, they, you know, they try to make up for their own inner lack of self-esteem. Recognizing that starts when you become strong inside and you start talking better to yourself, which is why things like the, you know, the inner voice cards are so useful. Love it. Let me, uh, this just brings back a memory when I was, Oh my gosh, I was probably early thirties. Dad was speaking at a, at a big event. There's about 4,000 people in the room. And of course, when dad would speak, I mean, it was all about personal development and success. And, and he believed strongly. And when he had a, you know, more than just an hour, he would also share just a tiny bit about his faith. I mean, he wouldn't, uh, you know, do a, a sermon on stage or anything, but he'd let people know that he was a believer. And then he also believed that the materials that we offer change lives. The, the speech might inspire somebody, but the, the resources that we offered could change life if you use it over and over again, because we, we teach and we believe there's not a, a one and done scenario, right? We've, we've, we've got to put the right things into our mind on a regular basis. And so uh, dad comes up and uh, at the end of it, and we're talking and, and we'd gotten like two or three complaints that day and a couple on faith and a couple that he was selling from the front of the room. And uh, I said, dad, we got these complaints. What do you think? And he, he looked at me with a big grin on his face and he said, he said, son, if we don't get at least a few complaints, we haven't been bold enough and we haven't sold enough. And it just, it just realized to me that he was so convicted of what he believed that what other people would say, that wasn't why he was there in the first place. He, he believed every day he was in the life-changing business. And so he went out there to change lives, not necessarily to get the standing ovation, to make everybody in the room happy, to dance around the tough subjects. In fact, he thrived on the tough subjects. And he did it in such a loving way uh, that that was it was it was just a, a powerful thing. And, and this is I wrote an article on this uh, in our Significance newsletter. And the title is, uh, Who Do You Believe? And there's three voices out there that we hear all the time. There's, you know, what is what is God? What does your creator say about you? What do others say about you? And then what do you say about yourself? Love and it. so 
which one of those voices do you believe? And then which voice do you believe from who's out there? And so dad spent his life, and this is what we do, uh, is we, we, we bring all the evidence. Uh, and, and I'm, you know, I love uh, what you talked about in the evidence. You know, we, we, we believe in something and then we only look for evidence that supports it. And that's one of the problems in the medical field is that we haven't had evidence-based medicine until recently. And there's a backlash going between the establishment who doesn't like evidence-based medicine. And so dad used evidence-based behavior to say, you know, what is the, who should I believe? And that ended up in him developing that philosophy. You've got to be before you can do and do before you can have. In other words, you've got to have the right mental belief, become the right person before the fruit of that is exhibited in a, in a consistent basis and the behaviors that you do. And when, then when you do the right kind of behaviors, then you can have all that life has to offer. And right now, you know, January is upon us and millions of people are going to join the gym and they're only going to focus on the doing and not the being. And that's why the gyms are going to be empty in March. So absolutely. Yeah. Well, on this, uh, Owen, I, I really wanted to, at the end of your talk here, I wanted us to, to end by hitting, uh, it's actually, I'm going to read right out of your transcript. You say, you see, you, you said, you see, you change your life more by the way you perceive it. If you create a new story, then you can start to believe it. And you go on and then you say, the point is getting you back in charge of your brain. Again, I want you to unpack this a little bit because I, I could I could put this out in the audience and say I think people think, but I, I'm going to put it on myself as well. I know that, okay. I mean, it's classic Ziggler stuff right there. It's a self-taught card. But when you say that, if you create a new story, then you can start to believe it. Uh, my experience is that's very difficult to take on because it feels like I, I'm just pretending this is not reality is reality. And I mean, of course you and I, I'm sure we've all heard people sure. say that reality is, is reality. You don't just put new glasses on and look at it differently and change everything. And yet you do, but that, but to say that, so if you create a new story, then you can start to believe it. I just want you to speak to, to those, maybe a, a little part of all of us, but to those specifically who hear that and go, yeah, but you can't just do that. My life is my life. My circumstances are not going to change sure. tomorrow just by creating a new story. So for those who want to embrace this, but at the core of themselves, they're, they're struggling with that. Help us out. Okay. So first of all, one of the other things that I mentioned is, uh, you know, the difference between the word suffering and struggling. And so I got this from, I was watching a movie, I think it was about Alice or something. It was, it was about a lady who suffered from Alzheimer's. And one of the things she said during the course of the, the movie, the real space on a true story, is that she said, I, I will not suffer anymore. I will struggle. Because struggle implies that she's going to be doing something about it, whereas suffering implies that you're just a victim of something. And I think that metaphor that I, I mentioned, I said, you know, I talk about, you know, I'm going to struggle on rather than suffering. And um, another line from it is, you know, around about the time where, you know, change your life more by the way you perceive it. If you create a new story, you start to believe it. And then I say, not the victim or monster, be the hero and you'll find a more useful voice, uh, more useful meaning than the voice in your mind. And what I mean by that is this. Every story starts when we say it starts. So if I was to ask you, what's your life story? You could start it when your parents met. You could start it when you were born. You could start it you know, when you, for your very first memory, you could start it when you left school, you could start it from your challenging time, 
you decide when your story starts and you also decide when your story finishes because it depends what story you're selecting. Every single time we choose to tell a story, we tell a part of an actual story. You tell about life, you select certain aspects of that, uh, you know, the world and how the world works and how life works, and you create a story around it, and that's what you do. When Zig would, would step on stage, he would tell stories about his own experience, and the stories he would tell would be the most inspiring. I mean, he was a truly magnificent storyteller, but he didn't say, you know, I was born at, you know, at zero hundred hours and this and this is and, and create a long winded, you know, story with parts that nobody cares about. He would get straight to exactly, you know, uh, what experience he went through, the conflict, the challenge, and he would talk about how he overcame it. And you can't change reality, but what you can do is change how you perceive reality by seeing yourself and recognizing yourself as someone who can be a hero. So let's say, for example, you're struggling or suffering with depression, or let's say you're, you know, 30 pounds overweight, or let's say you're broke. By you seeing I'm broke, poor me, it means that life isn't fair. It's the government. It's this. It's that. You're telling yourself a story of why you're broke. You're not telling a story of how you can overcome it. So changing the story means if you're broke or if you're overweight or if you're depressed, you begin to start to go, right, if I was to overcome this, if I was to beat depression, if I was to, you know, find a way of making money and find a way of building a good life for myself, if I was to, to be able to overcome this and to be able to successfully become slim, what would need to happen and starting to paint the picture and seeing yourself as the kind of person who can overcome that. So you position yourself as a hero in the story, facing the challenge, facing the monster, facing the villain, which is, you know, too much weight, which is poverty, which is, you know, sadness or depression. And you see that as being the villain that you need to overcome. And you see this as in order to overcome that, what do I need to do? And so you paint your own, you create your own story, you create your own future reality, and you decide this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be the hero of my own story. And no matter how many challenges I, uh, that, that happen to me, I'm going to keep overcoming them. And I'm going to make sure that at the end of this story, this is happy ever after, and I'm going to do whatever it takes. And to me, that's what I'm talking about. It's Instead of being the victim, which is poor me, or the monster, which is I've destroyed my life, I'm such a loser – Instead, you become the hero that says, I'm facing the challenges. Some of those challenges were self-imposed, some weren't, but I'm facing those challenges. Now, what do I need to do to overcome it? And telling yourself a new story that creates a better life, a better future, a better world. And to me, that's what I've done for myself. That's what I help people to do. And that's what I want more and more people to realize that they can do. Because again, as Tom just said, it's the identity that matters. It's who you believe yourself to be. It's being the kind of person you want to be. And that starts out with being the hero of your own story and then telling the story the way that you want to tell it. And that doesn't mean there won't be problems or challenges. You know, if you go off, you know, if you stop smoking or you lose weight in January, you go to the gym, there will be temptations. The temptations will be there to try to pull you back into the old lifestyle. The hero faces those temptations and overcomes them and beats them and wins through. And that's what anyone can do. It's not easy, but it can be done. And it will be done if you decide 100% that you're going to give yourself that gift this Christmas. I love it. Wow, what a powerful way to end this. And I don't know what you're doing, Owen, but you're bringing up my memory bank. Um, when you talk about the struggle versus suffering. So let's go back in time. Ten years ago, uh, Dad had just turned 80, and it was 2007. So it was actually uh, – uh, not quite 10 years ago, but close. Dad has a fall down the stairs. 
He gets two brain bleeds. He's in the hospital. He's got short-term memory loss, which never came back. After a couple of days in the hospital, the doctor comes in, looks him in the eye. I wasn't there. I was coming. I was out of town, and I was coming back in. Um, and the doctor looks him in the eye and says, Zig, you really need to think about what you're going to do because the way you used to speak, you're not going to be able to do that anymore. You might want to consider retiring. Dad smiles at him. The doctor locks out. Dad looks at my sister, Julie, and says, because he calls her little one. He says, little one, I still have something to say. We just have to find another way to say it. Wow. At that point, Dad was working on a book. That book got shelved, and a new book got written. And that book came out a year later, and it was called Embrace the Struggle. Wow. My sister Julie wrote that book with Dad. He wasn't at the capacity to be able to write like he was um, because of his brain injury. And she found a metaphor, which is awesome, and that is this. In bull riding, when the cowboy gets thrown off the bull, many times the hands on the rope are still attached. You may have seen a bull drag around a cowboy. What they are taught to do at that very moment is to wrap their arms around the bull's neck. The closer you can get to the bull, the less likely you are to being gored or stomped. And so literally you're embracing the struggle until the other cowboys and clowns come to rescue you. And I think that's the choice in life we all have. We're all going to have that, that circumstance that overwhelms us at some point. And the question is, what have we been feeding our mind up until that point to where in the hospital at 80 years old, your automatic natural reaction is, so what? <laughs> I'll yeah. just do it a different way. Wow. And, so, and so either way you go, whatever direction you go in, there is no downside to the approach that you're talking about, Owen. There is no downside to choosing the voice and what it's going to tell you. Because when things are great, they're better. And when things aren't so great, the pathway out is so much better, so much faster. I know I've looked back at dark times in my life. And when I look at the facts of the circumstance, now that I have maturity, I go, what was I thinking? It really wasn't that bad to begin with. It was all my inner voice that was making it more difficult than it had to be. Yeah. Wow, what a great, what a great time. I, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much, Tom. Thanks a lot, Kevin. And, and it means a lot to me to, you know, to get the opportunity to share this time with both of you and, and, and with your listeners and stuff. Zig has been a huge inspiration in my life. And myself and Brian, when we met you, Tom, we knew we'd be lifelong friends and we very much value our friendship and also the, the amazing work that you do. And, and again, it's a pleasure to learn a lot from, from you and um, to continue this journey to make the world a better place. Awesome. Hey, well, likewise on that, uh, I've got brothers and in uh, Dublin and in New York now, because I know you're going to be there for a while. Um, if people wanted to hear your TED talk, I know you've probably uh, linked them on the front end of this. Is there a best place for them to go in case uh, so they don't have well, to go back in the notes? Yeah, it's pretty much uh, it's it's online and it's um, you know if you type in my name Owen Fitzpatrick O W E N Fitzpatrick and then Mind Control TEDx 
then it'll come up pretty much one of the first few. And and again, I hope you in, in enjoy it. it. It's something that um you know I spent a lot of time working on, and you know I am proud of it, and, and I'm hoping that it can reach out to people and give them. I I've had a lot of people sort of saying that they've been in you know down places, and it's given them some sort of hope, and it's really helped them when they felt really bad. So I'm hoping that it can help everyone and anyone in, in the best way possible. And, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to share it. Absolutely. Hey, Owen, thank you. Thanks for the time, for sharing your heart, for bringing this message to us. Folks, you can uh, find him at the, the, all the links that we put on the intro. Uh, thank you again, Owen. Uh, grateful thank that you, you could Kevin. you would be here as we all inspire our true performance together. Folks, thanks for tuning in. We'll look forward to talking with you in the next Ziggler Show. Mm-hmm.